0: A quick note before we start this episode, this episode was recorded on Thursday night, January the 24th. The following day, on January the 25th, Hare President and the Congress reached a deal to temporarily reopen the government for three weeks without a border wall, and that'll be through February the 15th. So this is all probably going to happen again, but this episode was recorded Thursday night, so some of the information in this episode is going to be a little dated or no longer accurate enjoy the show hello welcome to i have so many questions i am your host brian watson This is a show about finding enlightenment from even the most mundane inquiries. Please rate and review the show wherever you get your podcasts. It helps bring in new listeners as I work toward establishing my cult of personality. This is episode nine, and employing the catch-all phrase or the catch-all interrogatory for this episode, basically. So what's been going on? I'll go into that in a little bit more detail here in a moment. Here's how you can get in touch with the show. The email address is I have questions podcast at gmail.com. The Twitter address has finally been updated. After six months of having a Twitter address that I absolutely despise, I bothered to get up off my butt for like two minutes and Google, how do you change your Twitter handle? The new Twitter handle is at I have so many Pod. Or you can just look up I Have so many Questions Podcast. Facebook.com forward slash I have so many questions podcast. Now on Instagram as well, although I don't know why, I have so many questions underscored between each word. So I underscore have underscore so underscore many underscore questions. (laughs) Oh, the things that we go through in order to increase our social media presence. Although I have gotten a little bit better at the Twitter thing lately. God, I'm such an old white man. Shows hosted on Anchor.fm and through their mobile app. I can't speak enough about how wonderful Anchor has been as a platform for this show, as I take a drink of soda or pop or whatever you want to call it, which is, okay, first question, why do some people in some places call it soda and some people in other places call it pop? I'm in Indiana. We call it pop. Why? <laughs> Does it have a certain pop to it? Yeah, it kind of pops in my belly, makes me burp, but... Why do we call it pop? And in other places, they call it by its, I guess, more traditional designation, soda, or more accurate designation, soda, because that's what the manufacturers kind of call it. I don't know. Anyway, I digress. Anchor.fm is the, the platform through which the show is hosted and through their mobile app. I can't speak highly enough about how, how great that platform has been for putting this whole thing together. They even help with, uh, with monetizing. I can monetize the show if I could figure out how to monetize the show, but they've got a methods and means to do it. I just have to get up off my middle-aged white man butt and do something about it. The show is streaming anywhere just about where you get your podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Overcast, CastBox, Pocket Casts, Breaker, Radio Public, and of course, iTunes and Apple Podcasts. Allow me to reiterate, please rate and review the show. Please contact the show however you choose to contact your show, especially since your dullard of a host has not been as proactive in getting myself out there since the inception of the show as I am trying to do now. Tell your friends, tell your neighbors, tell your enemies, tell complete strangers. If you're listening to I Have So Many Questions, share it with the world, even if it's for the purposes of mockery and derision. I'm okay with that. As uh, Danny Glover would say, I'm too old for this shit. Warning. There may be salty language. I got a gripe from my brother-in-law a few weeks ago around Christmas time. He likes to listen to the show with his two boys, my nephews, in the car with him. They're six and four. And with War on Christmas episode, the last episode, episode eight, uh, there was some salty language in regards to my description of one Tucker Carlson. I stand by that description, by the way. And there was some salty languages in a couple other spots. And he raised an objection about I can't really listen to the show with my kids in the car if you're going to be using the salty language because they start asking questions that I don't really want to answer. I'm like, okay, well, fine, I guess. This was not really intended for the listening pleasure of a six-year-old and a four-year-old, even though they are exceptionally smart boys, but I'll see what I can do. So warning, including to my brother-in-law, there may be salty language. I'll try to be good, but I make no promises. If need be, listen to the show ahead of time and then figure out where you want to skip. Maybe write down a time marker or two. I am recording this episode on January the 24th, 2019. By the way, Happy New Year. And last week or two, I've been trying to think of okay, what did I want to talk about with the next episode? And I find that coming up with topics that aren't about what's immediately going on in the world is kind of difficult. I know when I started this show, I wanted to talk about broader topics and subjects that weren't contemporaneous that would hopefully last a little bit longer but that's kind of hard to do especially for the format of what I'm trying to do here with this format of show anyway wow that's redundant so for this episode I was just like I've been watching the news and paying attention to what's going on and all this kind of stuff and uh, because I am a news junkie I'm a podcast junkie and a variety of other junkies there's no Betty Ford Clinic for what I've got going on But I kind of was like, okay, well, let's just do a contemporary episode about what's been going on because last 30 days or so, there's been quite a bit of stuff going on. And I know, you know, all four or five of you that listen to this show are probably wondering, hey, what is the I Have So Many Questions podcast think or have asking about or wondering about or talking about with stuff today as you wait with anticipation and bated breath, which are basically the same thing. What's been going on? We are, I believe, on day 34 of a government shutdown, which as a politics junkie, this one just absolutely baffles me to no end. I just don't get it. All right, that's not entirely true. I do get it. It's just really stupid. Here's another question. Why do we have a government shutdown right now? Depending on your confirmation bias, your predisposition, your political point of view, perhaps your general worldview, kind of depends on who you ask. From my point of view, being a cynic, a contrarian, and a curmudgeon, there's a fourth C. I can't say what that one is because supposedly a family podcast, right? It's not really a family podcast, but I have family that listens to it. But I'm a cynic, or curmudgeon, and a contrarian. So from my point of view, this is a really stupid government shutdown, and I've seen quite a few. I can still remember the government shutdown from 1995, the big Newt Gingrich kerfuffle some of which may have been driven by the fact that Newt Gingrich had to sit at the back of Air Force One on the way and on the way back from Yitzhak Rabin's funeral. For those of you who don't remember who Yitzhak Rabin was, he was the prime minister of Israel who was in the process of who made the most progress towards Israeli-Palestinian peace before he was assassinated by an Israeli. Anyway, there was a government shutdown not long after that, in the first year that the Republicans had control of both houses of Congress for the first time in 40-some years. I remember that one. Bill Clinton, say what you want about Bill Clinton, but the man was a spectacular politician. His political instincts, as opposed to all of his other instincts, his political instincts were spectacular. There has probably not been a more brilliant, pure political thinker, political tactician than Bill Clinton. Remember, he survived impeachment. He was laying the groundwork for that for a while to survive impeachment. Now, granted, a lot of things had to fall his way. Ken Starr had to be a turd. You had to have a whole bunch of Republicans in Congress, especially in the House of Representatives, who had to be turds. But there was a lot of uh, political shrewdness that he had to employ in order to survive that impeachment. But in 95, Clinton was brilliant. He shut the – the government shut down. The Republicans – Shut down. Newt Gingrich shut down the government because he wanted, I believe it was because he wanted a bunch of spending cuts or concessions or something like that. The Republicans had control of the Congress and they're like, we run this town now. You're just the president of the United States. We run things. This was a mandate. Blah, 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 blah. We're going to do what we want. And Bill Clinton said, oh, yeah, really? Yeah, good luck with that. And they shut down the government and it lasted. It was the longest government shutdown ever. Until now. And when Clinton shut down the government, he shut down the government. Nobody was working. Nobody was getting paid. Nothing was happening. Nobody was getting their social security checks. Nothing. That government shutdown was a lot bigger than this one. This one, there's only like five out of the 12 cabinet departments that aren't funded. One of them being Homeland Security. That's why you keep hearing about how the FBI and the TSA... And the Coast Guard aren't getting paid because they're all under Homeland Security. Homeland Security is not funded. The Defense Department, fully funded. So you don't hear about the Army, the Navy, the Air Force, the Marines. Although I find it interesting that the Coast Guard is considered a part of the armed forces, but it's under the umbrella of, the Homeland, of Homeland Security, not the Department of Defense. It's considered a part of the armed forces, but it's under, not under the Department of Defense. It's a weird alignment. Clinton shut down the whole government. He says, okay, fine. You want to shut down the government? We're going to shut down the government. Everything gets shut down. Nothing's happening. And it goes on for weeks. And Clinton is like out there every other day hammering home. I want to keep the government open. I want to keep the government open. I want to keep the government open. But the Republicans don't want to do that. Their agenda is more important than American lives. The other thing to keep, or th- than Americans getting back to work and the government working for for the American people and all this kind of stuff. Keep in mind, this is only about two or three years after a modest recession. I don't want to call it a major recession. It was a modest recession, and that was that was the reason Bill Clinton got elected, was because of the recession and George H W Bush seeming unresponsive to it. But that's still fresh in people's minds. And Clinton knows that, and he also knows that Newt Gingrich, Newt Gingrich, is a raving, vain, egomaniac who is credited with single-handedly getting the Republicans both the House and the Senate. The Contract with America, the Newt Gingrich, the Republican Revolution is all laid at the feet of Newt Gingrich. Although I think there were a variety of other factors that had more to do with it or helped Gingrich, but he's taking the credit for everything. I mean, he's he's the he's the uh, He's the greatest thing since Reagan. Heck, he did things that Reagan couldn't do. Clinton knows that he's dealing with a, v- a raving, vain egomaniac. Does that sound familiar to anybody at all? And he uses it against him. He Brazilian jiu-jitsu's the hell out of Newt Gingrich. To the point by, what was it, a 20, I don't know, about three, maybe four weeks in, Gingrich folds. The Republicans say, you know what? Fine, we're going to reopen the government. And they reopen the government. And then a year later... There's another government shutdown for a little bit, but I think that was after the '96 election when Clinton got re-elected. I think that was in the the lame duck session, I think, is when that happened. Clinton schooled Gingrich, and just about every government shutdown that's happened ever since has been initiated by Congress or factions of Congress. Held Ted Cruz all by himself shut down the government in 2013, which everybody keeps bringing up now every time Ted Cruz opens his mouth complaining about the shutdown. They're like, listen here, you little troll. Remember what you did in 2013? You had a hissy fit about Obamacare and you did this to grandstand so you could run for president. Remember that? But every government shutdown has up to this point largely – has been, has occurred – not largely – has occurred at the behest of the Congress, usually the Republican Congress, and usually by people who don't understand that government shutdowns don't work. president always wins in a government shutdown because usually the people that are leading the shutdown – are members of Congress. Members of Congress do an incredibly horrible job of explaining anything. They just are. They're horrible communicators. It's something about the, the, parliament, the parliamentary machinations of the Congress that makes them stupid or in a, unable to effectively communicate. It also compromises them in a variety of ways. Not that the compromise is a bad thing, but it, the ways in which members of Congress are compromised is a bad thing. But it makes them dumb. And it makes anything – and because they're dumb and because they they can't effectively communicate, it makes it look like anything that they're trying to accomplish, regardless of the virtue of it, looks like political grandstanding, political theater. It makes it look like – simply look like a power grab, that there's no virtue to it at all. The other thing it does, it makes them look weak and ineffective. Okay, you can't accomplish these things in regular – in the normal business, in the normal scope of business. You have to go to this extreme to try to accomplish something. You're that weak and that ineffective and that dumb that you can't figure out another way to get this done? Or more to the point, you want to have your cake and eat it too as opposed to using that awful C word, compromise. That there's only binary options. There's only a binary solution, my way or the highway. There is no in between. And this is why everybody has a low opinion of Congress most of the time because of stuff like that, government shutdowns. In the just the, the complete inability to not just govern effectively, but to govern, period. I mean, there were seven out of the 12 appropriations bills passed last year by Congress, and that was an improvement over probably any period of time in the last 10 to 12, maybe 14, 15 years. That's sad. So, government shutdown right now. Why? Because of hair president. President Oompa Loompa, the orange menace. Donald J, you can only imagine what the J stands for in certain circles, although I believe it really stands for John. I think John is or Jeffrey. It's not Joseph. I don't care. Donald J. Trump. Why? Because he wants something that he promised, that he promised in a certain way, that he's not going to get in a certain way. So to fulfill this promise, so that he doesn't look weak and ineffectual more so than he already is because he is weak and ineffectual because the man is an idiot, he's decided he's going to shut down the government until his temper tantrum is, has been placated and he's been given his bottle, a bedtime story, and a diaper change, all of which translates into a stupid, ineffectual, pointless, redundant, meaningless, absurd, counterproductive wall. Now, if you've been paying attention to the Donald, why doesn't anybody ever call him the Donald Duck? Just wondered. If you've been paying attention to the Donald, you know that since the first day of his campaign when he was talking about rapists or, excuse me, Mexicans being rapists and killers and all kinds of stuff. But from the first day of his campaign when he walked down that stupid es- stupid gold escalator in that stupid gold building, which screams of 1983, although his mindset is really 1883, but I digress. From day one, it's been about the wall. Supposedly, according to some anonymous sources uh, within the Trump campaign from 2016, the wall was a basically a uh, focus device, a mechanism, an apparatus to keep Donald on message. <laughs> we gotta, uh, we, we need him to have focus on immigration. Okay, well, how do we keep him? How do we keep him focused on immigration? We gotta give him something to focus on. I know. We'll have. We'll build a wall. He's a real estate guy. He knows how he, de- he loves to talk about building stuff, although the man's never built a damn thing in his life, at least nothing of consequence and nothing that lasted. We'll have him focus on a wall. We'll give him a wall. Then, of course, once you say you're going to build a wall, people start asking, what kind of wall is it going to be? Well, it's going to be a big concrete wall. It's going to be the most beautiful wall you've ever seen. The Great Wall of China is a beautiful wall. Also, it didn't work. It failed. The Berlin Wall was an ugly monstrosity and the only reason the way it worked is because you had guys with machine guns standing on it every 20 feet shooting anybody that got within 10 feet of it and that's only and that's when they were properly motivated. I can't recall if Trump has advocated for putting armed sentries on the wall or at the border shooting people on site. He probably has. His uh the the MAGA the MAGA crowd would love that. Absolutely love it. Heck the first time some immigrants tried to cross the border from Mexico and they were shot by Border, border Patrol or the National Guard or hell, right- wing militia that Trump appropriated for the task, Blackwater or something or another. Trump's approval rating in certain parts of this country probably go up a few points. Probably wouldn't in Indiana, which is where I'm at. Anyway, the Donald wants his wall when he had control of the, when he had complete control of the government, couldn't get his wall. Why? Because the, because and this is kind of surprising, the Republicans in Congress know this is a stupid idea. Paul Ryan knew it was a stupid idea. Mitch McConnell knew it was a stupid idea. Every committee chairman knew it was a stupid idea. Why? Because they do these things called hearings and they talk to the people that run those departments and all this kind of stuff and they talk to experts and all those experts and people say the same thing except for the border patrol, but that's because they have – they're entirely self-interested. Their motivation is not pure. But anyway – you have members of Congress who who run these committees and talk to all these people within the government and outside the government, they all say the same thing. There's better ways to do this. This wall is a waste of time. It's a waste of time. It's a waste of money. It's not going to work. And then Trump says, well, of course it's going to work because I'm the Donald Trump and what I say because I am essentially – I believe I am God. So therefore, because I say it, that makes it so. But you have this wall, and it's a stupid idea, and he can't get it done when he controls the entire government. So November 18 happens election ha- midterm election happens he gets shellacked democrats take over the house of representatives although he does get a bump in uh, in the senate but the calendar and the map favored him in the senate greatly in 2018 so there's no reason why he shouldn't have he also had a couple people that were kind of stupid claire mccaskill if claire mccaskill and joe donnelly had voted for kavanaugh they probably would have they probably would have won re-election probably mccaskill probably more so than donnelly but i digress Heidi Heitkamp in, was that North Dakota? If she'd done the same thing, she'd probably have been fine too. 2018 happens. Democrats take over the House of Representatives. Donald Trump, first at first he says, hey, we'll continue to keep the government open for a little while. And then after Ann Coulter and Rush Limbaugh, because Trump because Trump watches television, that's all he does. He doesn't do any actual governing. He doesn't do any lead. He doesn't actually lead. He doesn't do any governing. He sits on his ass in the, the residency of the White House until, like, I don't know, two o'clock in the afternoon, watching television, either Fox News Live or Fox News that's been TiVo. The man watches cable news on DVR, and he does it all day long. Make America great again. Yes. Sit on your butt and do nothing, and we're going to pay you for it while you go to Mar-a-Lago every damn weekend. He listens to Ann Coulter and Rush Limbaugh, who basically call him a wimpy little girly man. Actually, there's another word that they were probably actually referring to him as, they were basically doing everything humanly possible to emasculate Donald Trump, which you want to get under the man's skin. And I used man in a generous manner. You emasculate him. You question his manhood. This is a guy who last week it was discovered has, has his digital media team Photoshop the size of his fingers. They also make him look slimmer, but really who doesn't use Photoshop for that? But they Photoshop his fingers. They make him look bigger. This is a man who has a serious inferiority complex about it, the size of his hands, which evidently he has no such compunctions about the size of his waistline nor the size of his hair. Also, how can a man who has who is that shade of orange not have an advertising deal f- with Florida or for orange juice? A man that shade of orange should be pimping Florida orange juice or Florida oranges. The man should be the principal advocate for vitamin C, and yet, that's been overlooked. Maybe something to do after he's out of office if he's not in jail. And Coulter, Rush Limbaugh, emasculate him. He changes his mind, says, no, shut it down. He brings Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi into the Oval Office with cameras in front of it, and ba- and does the stupidest thing ever, which is I'm gonna oh I'll take ownership for this I'm gonna blow this thing up This is gonna be the greatest government shutdown ever He'd also been talking about shutting down the government for weeks or months or years if he didn't get his wall This is how the man negotiates This is the deal maker The man's an idiot Anyway So here we are We're shut down And everybody's like Well Why don't the Democrats make a deal I will say this. Nancy Pelosi in the last 60 days has – she's a horrible communicator. She is absolutely awful when it comes to messaging. She always has been. You get no better example of that than her, her and Chuck Schumer's response after Trump's primetime speech about immigration, which was also a piece of flarg. She was awful. She was as bad. She was as bad, if not worse, than Trump. She's a horrible communicator. She cannot articulate the message or the vision for the Democratic Party. But in purely political terms, in, pu- in pure political acumen, she is brilliant and she's demonstrated it in the last 60 days. I take outside of the whole face of the party thing, which she should not be the face of the party at all. She should not be articulating the vision or the message of the party, but she should find somebody else to do that for her. That isn't Alexandria Ocasio-Tortez because that girl puts her foot in her mouth as much, almost as much as any other member of Congress, except for maybe Louis Gomer and Lindsey Graham on oh, Steve King, but he's a racist. She's a horrible communicator, but a brilliant political tactician and strategist. How she has handled this whole thing, how she's handled the last 60 days, has been nothing short of brilliant. And the message from the Democrats has been clear the president is holding the government hostage because he wants his wall. The president's not interested in border security. We're talking about border security. The, Trump, the president is only interested in keeping a campaign promise because everybody that he thinks speaks or represents his base is saying this wall, if you don't do this wall, it will end your presidency, even though they didn't say it a year ago or two years ago when the Republicans controlled everything. Nobody was saying that then. And when you pull his base, the wall ain't that important. So he's listening to the wrong people. Trump's holding the government hostage to fulfill a campaign promise. We're willing to talk—and and then they were also saying, we're you know, we'll talk about border security once their government's reopened. We're not going to talk about the wall before then. This is a hostage situation. We have to take a stand now because otherwise, every time the president wants something that he won't get, he will do this. It's like when you have a child that has a temper tantrum. They want a candy bar or they want— they want something and you know they shouldn't have it. You don't want to give it to them and they have a hissy fit, a temper tantrum. And you just sit there and let them have the tantrum. You don't cave in. You don't give them what they want. You you stand your ground. It's like when a baby's crying in the crib at night and a newborn and your first impulse is to go in there and calm the baby down and get it, get it to go back to sleep. And they tell you at a certain point. You have to stop doing that because the baby has to be able to to cry. Basically, the baby has to be able to put itself back to sleep. Otherwise, you're going to condition the baby that every time it cries, you're going to come in and check on it. And it'll know that. It's a Pavlovian conditioning thing. So you give in to Trump now on this. Guess what's going to happen in six months or a year? What do you think he's going to do? He's going to say, I want more wall money. The Congress is going to say no. And what do you think he's going to do? He's going to shut the government down again. Because this man is a horrible negotiator. He's a horrible dealmaker. He does not know how to interact with people. The worst thing that has ever happened was nobody ever told Donald Trump no. The man doesn't understand the concept of no because nobody ever told him no. This guy went to a military school when he was a kid. Evidently, no wasn't a high priority then, you know, at this, at this military school. Parents never told him no. He wanted to get out of the draft. He got out of the draft. Cadet bone Spurs. You're going to get drafted. I don't want to get drafted. Okay, fine. You're not getting drafted. The man bankrupts a dozen, half a dozen businesses. There's no consequences to him for that. Somehow he gets these banks and these financial companies for whatever reason to play ball with him. And then when they stop playing ball, he goes overseas to Germany or to the Russians and they don't say no. Nobody's ever told him no. So if if you're a 70 year old man, and again, I use that term loosely as a, uh, as a descriptor rather than a noun. Okay, that is actually not correct. But I use that term loosely. But when you're a man like that, and you're a 70-year-old man, and you've never been told no, at some point, especially if you're wanting to assert your own power and independence as a co-equal branch of government, which the Congress is, keep in mind, Speaker of the House is third in line to the presidency. Something unfortunate happens to Donald Trump and Mike, Prant- Mike Pence. You're talking President Nancy Pelosi, not Mitch McConnell. If you want to assert that you are a co-equal branch of government, that is to be respected by the White House or, dare I say, feared by the White House before the first committee hearing has even been held on the end to anything regarding your administration and dealing with a man who has the the emotional and intellectual quotient of a nine-year-old, maybe a nine-year-old who's been in a persistent vegetative state for the previous eight years of their life, you're going to have to dig in your heels. You can't give in to that. You give in once. You'd give in once. You're gonna to have to deal with this all the time. And if you're Trump, who doesn't know, who only thinks that the only that the only way to win is to destroy, he believes he truly believes this. In order for him to win, you have to lose. Everything in life is a zero sum game. When you have that binary thinking, and you're dealing with somebody who has that kind of binary thinking, you have no choice but to give them a dose of their own medicine. You have no choice but to give say no. Not to mention the fact that any deal that the any deal that the Democrats were to make with him isn't worth the paper it's printed on if it even if it's even printed on paper because you have absolutely no idea until he actually signs something that he's actually going to keep to his word because the man is a pathological liar. He's amoral. I don't want to say he's immoral because immoral means you have to have a sense of right and wrong. He doesn't. He's amoral. He's vain, he's narcissistic, he's amoral. And he feels entitled to do what he wants, whenever he wants, however he wants, on a whim because it suits him. And when you're dealing with somebody like that, you can't trust anything that they do. Look what he did at the end of December. He tells the Republicans, he tells Mitch McConnell and he tells the House Republicans, send me your continuing resolution to keep the government open for a couple of months. I'll sign it. The Republicans, the Senate votes unanimously on a continuing resolution. That's when Coulter and Limbaugh and Everybody else jump in and emasculate Trump. I think particularly – I think Ann Coulter had a lot to do with this because he's not going to get – no woman is going to tell him – no woman's going to call him a P word, which is basically what she did. Trump has a serious problem with women. He's certainly not going to have any woman questioning his manhood or his tiny fingers. Uh-uh. He changed his mind before the House could vote. The Senate votes the night, the night before unanimously for the continuing resolution. They're going to save this until 2019. They're going to have this fight over the wall in 2019. Before the House can vote on it, the next day, Trump's calling Paul Ryan and the House leadership in and saying, eh, I changed my mind. I'm not going to vote. No, I'm not going to I'm gonna sign this thing. I want my wall. Give me my wall. I want my wall. I want my wall. And you can't tell me no. And that's how we end up here. Can you imagine what Paul Ryan's blood pressure is probably like these days? Now that he's no longer in Congress, he's no longer the Speaker of the House. I'm willing to bet the man has less gray hair now than he did a month ago, if that's possible. If that's possible, he's probably that way. You know, he's like Barack Obama at this point. Yeah, you see, have you seen it? Has anybody seen Barack Obama in the last two years and Michelle Obama? They look great. They look younger. So here we are. Government shutdown. Day number 34. What else is going on? The New England Patriots are in their third straight Super Bowl. I'm at about that point where if somebody were to hire a team of ninjas to, I don't know, do something horrible to Tom Brady and Bill Belichick, I'd feel bad about it, but not real bad about it. I'd say, oh, that's, that's that's just awful. New England's in their third straight Super Bowl. They're about to play the Los Angeles Rams, which ironically was the team that they played in the first Super Bowl that they were in in the Brady Belichick era when they cheated. <laughs> Spygate. When they cheated to win the Super Bowl. This was back when the Rams were the St. Louis Rams and the greatest show on turf. And they cheated to win the game. What else is going on? There's this whole actually I'm gonna I'm not gonna talk about the Covington Catholic school thing at the Washington DC Lincoln Memorial thing. I'm not gonna talk about that in great detail because that's a great big cluster fart of a story that everybody has just gotten so horribly wrong. And it's become so horribly siloed and tribalized and whatever ism you want to throw in there to describe it. But I do want to kind of talk about this trend of things that's been occurring, at least that I've noticed regularly. First, there was this thing with the teenage kids, the Catholic teenage kids there at the, who were there for the March for Life, the whole Covington Catholic thing with the Native American guy playing the drum who every time I listen to that man speak, I'm like, you are so full of shazbat. Caught myself. This guy, Nathan Phillips, I don't believe a word that comes out of his mouth. I just don't. This is a man who every time I hear him talk, I don't believe a word he says because it's clear his intentions are not genuine when he speaks. he is not speaking from a place of authenticity. This is a man fulfilling an agenda. Now, that being said, everybody else who's spoken on this, including the 17-year-old kid who was wearing the MAGA hat with the stupid smirk standing two feet in front of him, not moving, that kid's got an agenda. Or people around him have an agenda. He's gotten sucked into an agenda. But everything that's surrounded that is just – it's just abysmal. It's like the Kavanaugh thing all over again. Nobody has handled this well. But what I've noticed lately is there was – there was a high school here in Indiana where a bunch of teenage boys, high school boys, were all together in a group photo and they were all doing the Nazi salute. And I think there was, was it a fraternity or it was someplace up in Wisconsin, there was another group photo of a bunch of teenage boys doing the exact same thing. And everybody's like, oh, we're going to look into this and this is horrible. This is, this is an indication of Trump's America and all this. And it's the same with this, the kid at the Lincoln Memorial thing and those kids in the MAGA hats. And I'm like, you know, okay, do you people not realize what these boys are doing? They're trolling. They're doing what stupid teenage boys do. They're doing something for the shock value of it. They're doing it to get attention. Hey, you know what? You know what would be really outrageous and be, be really cool is if we all did Nazi salutes together, especially in the age of social media and the internet. You take a digital photo on your camera phone, you post it on your Facebook page, ironically. <laughs> Look at what we did, and it goes viral. Does anybody really think that any of those kids doing the Nazi salute were actual Nazis or white supremacists or white nationalists or anything like that? No. They were doing it to get attention. They were being freaking Kardashians. They're being attention whores. That's what they're doing. They're doing what teenage boys do. Me, me, look at me, look at me, look at me. See, guy. Or you go to a Right to Life rally where there's another rally, a Native American rally, which also happens to be at the same place at the same time. And you go there and you wear MAGA hats. Now, those kids could be diehard Donald Trump supporters. Chances are, though, they're they're there to get noticed. They could have gone to that rally, that that march, that life march, because they're anti-abortion, because they're Catholic, they go to a Catholic school, and Catholics are, are at least the official doctrine or the, the official position of the Catholic Church is they're anti-abortion. So it makes sense for them to go to a right-to-life march. But do you have to go to a right-to-life march wearing the MAGA hats? The people on the pro-life side of the abortion issue, it's not a funny thing. Truth be told, to the people on the other side of the abortion issue, it's not a funny thing. It's a solemn thing. Both sides agree it's a solemn thing, and it should be treated with a certain degree of gravitas. Both sides agree on that too. So is it really appropriate to wear MAGA hats? Even though, truth be told, Donald Trump probably doesn't give a flying hoot nanny about the issue of abortion. But those kids wore those MAGA hats to that rally. Whether they migrated to the Native American march or the Native American march migrated to them, either way there was a convergence. And they had their MAGA hats on. Why? Because they were trying to get attention. And that's what they got. Same with those kids doing the Nazis, the high school boys doing the Nazi salute in Indiana. Same as the teenage boys in Wisconsin, either high school or college, I don't know, doing the Nazi salutes. This is the same thing as the guy wearing the Nazi uniform to a Halloween party. Do you really think he's a Nazi? Do you really think he's a member of the Aryan nation? No. He's doing it to get attention. It's for shock value. He's being funny or he thinks he's being funny and because somehow, I don't know, Nazis are funny to him. But what he's really doing is trying to get attention. Hey, hey, look at me! I'm dressed as a Nazi. I'm Hitler. See, Kyle. And for added effect, he probably even tries to speak in German with a lot of spitting and stuff like that because that's the way he thinks German. Germans probably talk. But this is what everybody, the, all these all these boys are doing. They're being teenage boys. They're trying to get attention. They want they want the world to pay attention to them, even if for a second, even if it's bad. There's no such thing as bad publicity. You know, that's what they're doing. I think that's what they're doing. They're not white nationalists. They're not white supremacists. They're not exercising their white privilege. They're being stupid teenage boys for the purposes of equal time and fairness. Teenage girls do a lot of stupid stuff too to get attention, but it's not Nazi stuff. It's not doing the Nazi salute or dressing up as a Nazi or trying to look like Hitler or stuff like that. Teenage girls do stupid stuff in completely different ways, but basically for the same reasons, to get attention. Hey, look at me. Look at me. That's what teenagers do. But that's something that I've noticed lately. It seems to be coming up a lot more. The outrage engine on, on upon which our country seems to run now, which is a big, fat, diesel-engined gas guzzler that makes a, a Ford F-350 look like a Volvo. The various outrage mobs that we have just eat it up. And it's great clickbait. So, what else is going on? Got a bunch of Democrats that are starting to announce their runs for president, even though the presidential election isn't for another 22 months. Off the top of my head, let me see, and I really should have gotten a list on this. Elizabeth Warren, Julian Castro, Kamala Harris, Kristen Gillibrand... The mayor of South Bend, whose name I cannot remember all of a sudden. Some guy I think who's a state senator in Virginia who I've never heard of before. Oh, who else? I know there are other people. There's like a dozen people already, I think. And there's probably at least a dozen more who are thinking about it. You know, There's the question of this, you know, Cory Booker, the senator from New Jersey, is he going to run? God, I hope not. Bernie Sanders, Beto O'Rourke, Joe Biden, I'm sure there's a couple of other women in Congress that I'm not thinking of at the moment who are being considered. Oh, the governor of Colorado, he's looking to run. There's talk of maybe Michael Bloomberg, the former mayor of New York and one of the richest men in America. Maybe he might run as a Democrat, although God, I hope not. But basically you're going to have all these Democrats vying for the shot to take on the orange menace, President Oompa Loompa. Again, those are two names that I did not come up with on my own. I have stolen them or appropriated them from other sources. They're all vying to take on the Donald. So let's talk about him a little bit. Give you my kind of handicap the field, if you will. The two front runners from my, to, my, to my mind are Joe Biden because he's a former vice president. And if anybody can go toe-to-toe and trade shots with Trump on a pure punch-counterpunch level, it's Biden. If Biden had ran for president in 2016, he'd be president. He'd have beat Trump. And you hear all this talk about Trump. The one that Trump's really worried about is Biden. And I think there's a reason for that. And I think that's legit. I think Trump does worry about Biden as much as if he, if he worries about anybody. And I don't think he does because that would require thought. And the man is incapable of thought for longer than three seconds except for unless it involves a – no, never mind. I'm not even going to go there. But I think he's genuinely worried about Biden because – and I think the people around him are generally, genuinely worried about Biden because Biden – Biden's a no-nonsense guy, especially in his – elder years. He's a, he's a stand his ground type of guy. You saw that with his, in the debates with Sarah Palin. You saw that in the debates with uh, Paul Ryan. He's that type of guy. He's a scrappy guy. He has a great story. He was the vice president for eight years under Barack Obama. So that gives him a lot of, he's got a lot of clout within the party. The one problem that Joe Biden has, well, there's couple of problems that Joe Biden has. One, how forgiving is the Democratic Party going to be? How forgiving are progressives going to be about how he handled the Clarence Thomas Anita Hill thing because he was the chairman of the Judiciary Committee back in 1991? They were the ones that voted Thomas through, and he got confirmed by the Senate on the whole. And that fiasco was at Biden's feet because he was the chairman. How forgiving are progressives going to be about that? And then his the, some of the things that he did in the 90s as, as a senator. He, you know, he kind of – he supported, I believe, Clinton's crime bill. You know, he has a history of gaffes. And then the other issue is the man's 78 years old. He's awfully spry for a 78-year-old. I mean, Nancy Pelosi's 78 years old. They're the same age. She's pretty spry too. But he's 78 years old. Do you want to elect – is the Democratic Party and the progressives in the party, the young base, the millennials? Are you going to appeal to them by nominating a 78-year-old white guy from the Northeast – from Delaware, but he has a great story. He's a blue collar guy. The man still, the man commuted by train, by Amtrak, to and from his state every day, in the morning and in the evening. He has a great story, but he's 78 years old and he's got some baggage. And it's gonna be a question of how forgiving the progressives in the Democratic base, how forgiving they're going to be. Which is more important, purity or beating Trump? Because that's what killed him in 2016. He had all these people that were for Bernie. Or who for were the purists, they were the progressives who really did not think that Hillary was a progressive, even though she is one. She's just not their kind of progressive, which is another issue entirely. And we'll talk about that in another episode. I'm working on a, working on things to put together and comparing and contrasting liberals and conservatives and why liberals fail, at least politically. But that was their problem with Hillary was that she wasn't what they wanted. They wanted Bernie. And because they didn't get Bernie, they chose not to vote or a lot of them. A a significant number of them voted for Trump. I don't have no idea why, but they did. And hence why Donald Trump is president right now. Besides that, Hillary run an absolutely horrible campaign. But that's going to be the real—that's going to be the ultimate test, the ultimate question that the Democrats and the progressives in the Democratic Party, the base, has to decide upon. Which is more important, purity or beating Trump? Because you can't have both. You're not going to have both. And if you think you can have both, there's a reason why Ted Cruz isn't president. And will never be president. There's a reason why Mike Pence is never going to be president, because purity does not win you elections. It certainly doesn't win you the White House. Elizabeth Warren. Elizabeth Warren cannot be the nominee because Elizabeth Warren, one, does not do a very good job of communicating to anybody that doesn't already think the way she does. Two, Elizabeth Warren's biggest problem is that Donald Trump is so far inside her head, he's practically living there. He, he could sublet the space inside of her skull. He, he has that much residency in there. The whole thing with the ancestry.com and showing that she was, you know, that she was in fact Native American and to some very small percentage degree, that is entirely because Donald Trump is inside her head. The whole Pocahontas thing. If he's that far inside your head on something like that, what are you going to do when you're in a debate with him? What are you going to do when you're on the campaign trail? Also, I don't think she can appeal to blue collar voters. She just – I just don't think she speaks their language. I don't think she can. I don't think she can – blue-collar voters there can be a lot of things. I don't think she can communicate to any group that isn't progressive, that doesn't already speak her language. I don't think she can communicate to African-Americans. I don't think she can communicate to Hispanics. I don't think she can – I don't think she can communicate to independents and moderates. I don't think she can do those things. But the biggest problem and the, one, and the biggest reason why she should not be and cannot be the nominee is because Trump owns her. He is inside her head, totally inside her head. Kamala Harris, who has announced. Kamala Harris's biggest problem is going to be she's an African-American woman. She's a first-term senator. Hmm, first-term African-American senator running for president. Where have we heard that before? Kamala Harris has got two big problems. One, she's from California, which is not that big of a deal, but... People who live in California and people who work in California or come from California and in politics do not view the rest of the country the right way. They just don't. Nancy Pelosi doesn't. Nobody does. Republicans from California don't view the country the right way because they're all from Orange County. Okay, the only people that live in Orange County are rich white people, really rich white people. The other problem that Kamala Harris has is that she's a former prosecutor and she just, and you, you can tell every time she questions somebody in a committee hearing. I believe she was on the Judiciary Committee during the Kavanaugh hearings, and, and she's every time she's on a committee, she que- asks questions like a prosecutor. When she speaks, she speaks like a prosecutor. She's doing an interrogation. She's got somebody on the witness stand. She's interrogating them. She's going. She's looking for that gotcha moment. And from what I understand. As a former prosecutor and as the former attorney general of the state of California, she was zealous in pursuits of her duties. In the age of Black Lives Matter and Me Too, well, not so much Me Too, but definitely Black Lives Matter, criminal justice and in the era of criminal justice reform, pot legalization, all that kind of stuff, which I'm not sure what her position was in regards to California's efforts on medical marijuana and then last year on their legalization of marijuana. I don't know if she's taken a position on that. Or if she has, I don't know what it is. In the era of those things, as a prosecutor and as the attorney general of the state of California, the most populous state in the country, which has a massive Latino, Hispanic, Latino, and African-American population, particularly in the southern half of the state, that could be problematic. Your record is going to go, bingo. is your record... In that position is going to be gone over with a fine-tooth comb more so than anything you've done or ever could do in the United States Senate. That's a serious liability because you got to figure they're going to find something. Opposition research is going to find something. The other problem is, is that she has no vision that I've seen so far. She's a prosecutor. She has that mindset. That's not a leadership position. Prosecutors aren't leaders. Prosecutors are enforcers, and everything they do, they do with zeal and righteous fury most of the time. Well, zeal and righteous fury in that type of position can get you in a lot of trouble, especially if you decide to run for president. Cory Booker shouldn't run because of the whole Spartacus thing made him look like a freaking idiot. The Spartacus thing during the Kavanaugh hearings I am Spartacus. No, you're an idiot. You're a grandstanding, self absorbed idiot. Obviously, you weren't paying all that close of attention to Barack Obama in the eight years that he was president. Julian Castro, no, he was a mayor, and then he was HUD secretary or HHS secretary, one of the two. No, no. Again, I'm sure there are other people. Kristen Gillibrand. Kristen Gillibrand's problem is that she went after Al Franken. She went after Al Franken harsh. She's the one that got Al Franken to resign, which— was a reasonable thing to do and made sense in light of the accusations against him, the photos and all that kind of stuff. He should have let. That was the right thing to do. And to ask him to resign was the right thing to do. The problem is that it pissed off a whole bunch of liberals, a whole bunch of progressives. The problem with that was is that you have a bunch of progressives who, who are okay with Me Too until it starts to hurt their agenda. Why did, you know, Al Franken, you know, he was, did these things, these were inappropriate and all this kind of stuff. And the the woman accused him of forcibly, that woman, woman who, whose name I cannot remember, who says that he forcibly kissed her while they were rehearsing a skit. Sorry, but if, you know, if you're supposed to believe the victim and she's a victim, then yeah, he's got to go. And he, and away he went. And Kristen Gillibrand pushed that endeavor. She was, she is an ardent Me Too supporter in that regard. At least recently. Problem is that she got rid of the the person that she got thrown out of the Senate was Al Franken. Now keep in mind, Al Franken was a senator from Minnesota. Okay, you get rid of one really liberal Democrat and you replace him with another equally liberal Democrat. In fact, I think the person that replaced him was a woman. So you're not really losing anything. The only thing that you're losing is that Al Franken was a pretty good questioner in hearings. He did a real good job of questioning witnesses in hearings pointing out things he did he took his job as senator seriously for a guy who was a former comedian and comic writer he took his job seriously and he was a prominent liberal voice and because of Kristen Gillibrand, he's gone and there are a lot of liberals and a lot of progressives within the inner circles the inner workings of washington really have a problem with that and the question is will people will the liberal base out in the country have an equal problem with that that could be her downfall is entirely because of what happened with Al Franken, and she, in a lot of ways, kind of looks like an. She looks like an opportunist. Gillibrand got elected in the wake of Hillary Clinton becoming Secretary of State. She took Hillary Clinton's Senate seat, and she was, I believe, she was appointed to that position by the Governor of New York, and then, obviously, you know, springboarded that into winning the next election. I believe that's how that worked. So there's Kristen Gillibrand. She's got problems. Or that's going to be a problem for her. Last two, Beto O'Rourke, who came within three points of beating Ted Cruz in heavily, very red Texas. Although you have all these liberal progressive fantasies that that Texas is slowly turning purple. Yeah, you haven't won a statewide election in over two decades. Yeah, you're turning purple. Whatever. The reason Beto O'Rourke came within three points of te- beating Ted Cruz... There's actually two reasons. One, it was a midterm election where everybody hates Donald Trump. And two, the only person that everybody hates more than Donald Trump is Ted freaking Cruz. The people in Texas don't even like Ted Cruz. He's a troll, but he's the troll that lives underneath the bridge in those uh, nursery rhymes or fables or whatever. He's that kind of a troll. Everybody hates Ted Cruz. The problem is he's their best worst option if you're a conservative Republican. That's why Beto O'Rourke came within three points. The man raised more money than any Senate candidate in the history of ever. I mean, he raised tens of millions. I think he raised almost—he either raised—almost raised or did raise $100 million for a Senate campaign. That's sick. That's a lot of money. But I think a lot of that was liberal, wishful thinking because everybody hates Ted Cruz. Everybody wanted Ted Cruz's scalp. You get Ted Cruz—it's kind of like when um, when Eric Cantor— who was the, uh, the majority whip, lost his primary. Interestingly enough, the guy who beat him in that primary ultimately lost. But when Eric Cantor, who was the majority whip in the House of Representatives, lost his primary, and that was a, to, a tea, to a real diehard Tea Party guy. This was before Trump. And he lost his primary. Everybody was like totally stunned and shocked. Holy crap. The Tea Party took a scalp. Same thing happened in Indiana when Richard Murdoch beat long-standing statesman and Senator Richard Luger in a primary. It was a Tea Party scalp. Dick Luger was considered too moderate and too out of touch because Dick Luger actually understood the complexity of things. As opposed to Richard Murdoch, who was a complete and total tool, and the Tea Party in Indiana was also run by complete and total tools. But they got their scalp. They got Dick Luger. Same thing happened to Eric Cantor. That's what happened this year. Except for it wasn't with the Tea Party. This year, because Ted Cruz was a Tea Party guy, he came in on the Tea Party wave. He's also a real tool. That's what they were. That's what liberals and progressives were hoping to happen, and Democrats were hoping to happen this year. If we could get us, if we could get Ted Cruz, if we could beat Ted Cruz, that would be so incredibly symbolic. The symbolism of that would would pro- would project us for a decade. People would speak of it in song. Epic poems would be written about. The, the, the defeat of the hideous Ted Cruz—that's what they were hoping for. That's why Beto O'Rourke raised so much money. That being said, Beto O'Rourke does have a cup. Does have some unique qualities. Has some good qualities. He's personable. He's charming. He's a very likable guy by all accounts. He's congenial. He he's he's moderate. He's generally bipartisan. He'll talk to both sides. The, other pro- the biggest problem that Beto O'Rourke has, though, is that he's a middle-aged white man. And if you're the Democratic Party and if you're the progressive liberal base of the Democratic Party and you are up to your forehead in identity politics and in intersectionality and you're going up against Donald Trump— it's not enough just to beat Donald Trump to have somebody else in the White House that isn't Donald Trump. It's got to be – is it enough just to beat him or do you have to beat him? Do you have to beat the rich old white man who's a bigot? Can you beat him with no one else but a woman or an African-American or an African-American woman? I'm surprised nobody or Nobody. there's not been a grassroots campaign to have Stacey Abrams who ran for governor in Georgia. I'm surprised there hasn't been a grassroots campaign to get her to run for president. You'd have thought something like that would happen, but it hasn't happened yet. I'm surprised. But is it enough just to beat Donald Trump? Is it enough to beat a rich old white man who's a bigot with a middle-aged white man who isn't a bigot or an old white man who isn't a bigot that just happens to be on my team or more on my team than the rich old white man who's a bigot who's sitting in the White House now or his bootlicking lackey who's the vice president? I mean, Mike Pence, Trump is really bad, but Mike Pence just, there's just something about Pence that makes me want to wish that i that i wasn't even that i wasn't even associated to him by the same by being in the same gender or not gender or sex both he refers to his wife as mother who the hell does that what kind of sick warped arrested development mindset do you have to have to refer to your wife as mother no if you're the progressive liberal base of the democratic party do you want a middle-aged white man beating an old as your standard bearer to go up against a rich, old white man who's a bigot, which speaking of old, rich white men, Bernie Sanders, the question I have, actually, I have a lot of questions about Bernie. I'm not a fan of Bernie Sanders. To me, Bernie Sanders is the liberal progressive other side of the coin to Donald Trump. They are two sides of, he is the other side of the same coin. They view things very much the same way in that they have a very old, rigid, inflexible, outdated mindset of the world. They also view the world in a zero-sum game binary manner. You have never heard Bernie Sanders advocate for any kind of win-win situation, ever. Bernie Sanders is an old, rich white man. He's not a bigot. I don't think he thinks about things in those terms, which is a large part, was a large part of his problem in 2016, and I think it'll be a large part of his problem now. He has mondo blind spots. He has mondo blind spots to women. He has mondo blind spots to race. He has mondo blind spots to criminal justice, to criminal justice issues, law enforcement, all that kind of stuff. Bernie Sanders only thinks of team things in terms of class, which is a prevailing mindset among liberals and progressives. That all there is is class. It's like a Monty Python skit from the Holy Grail. There you go, bringing class into it again. Well, that's what it's all about. Help! Help! I'm being repressed. Do you see the way he was repressing me? That's Bernie Sanders in a lot of ways. But he's got serious blind spots. The other problem is that he – I'm sorry, folks. He's not a Democrat. He doesn't give a flying hoot, nanny, about the Democratic Party. Never has, never will. All Bernie Sanders cares about is himself. Where have we heard that before? The Democratic Party crashes and burns. He doesn't care. He's not a Democrat. He's an independent. He's a socialist. That's the other problem. He's a socialist. Problem with liberals and progressives – and again, we'll do another – I'll do a podcast episode on this down the line. The biggest problem with liberals and progressives is that they do not – understand the fundamental American mindset in regards to, in regards, not just personal liberty, but in regards to liberty in general. Socialism is the antithesis of liberty. It always has been. It always will be. And everybody wonders why we're not more socialist. That's why. Because those people do not understand the fundamental principle of liberty in the American consciousness, in the American psyche. It is a fundamentally unique American idea. It is the most fundamental idea that we have. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Progressives do not understand that. And because they don't understand that, that's a large part of the reason why they fail. But Bernie Sanders is a socialist. Bernie Sanders doesn't believe any of that. The other problem that Bernie Sanders has is that he has a serious blind spot in regards to guns. That also hurt him in 2016. But in light of all the shootings that have occurred since then, that's a problem. The other problem that Bernie Sanders has is that there's a big unanswered question in regards to 2016. How much of Bernie Sanders' appeal was because of Bernie Sanders and how much of it was because Hillary Clinton was running for president? It's kind of the same unanswered question about Trump winning the election. How much of that was, done, was the appeal of Donald Trump versus the lack of appeal of Hillary Clinton? How many people voted for Trump because they didn't want to vote for Hillary or they couldn't vote for Hillary? I'm one of those people. I couldn't vote for Hillary. I didn't vote for Trump though. Bernie Sanders has the same problem. How much of Bernie's appeal was because Hillary Clinton was the candidate and was going to be the standard bearer for the Democratic Party? Bernie didn't have a particularly great message. He has a a horrible message. He has a horrible economic plan. There is absolutely nothing appealing beyond the surface layer. There is absolutely nothing appealing about anything that Bernie Sanders advocates. It all sounds good. It's impossible to implement. So that's my handicapping of the field presently as it's presently constituted or could be constituted in the near future. Any feedback that you have on this episode or any previous episode would be greatly appreciated. Comments, questions, criticisms, concerns, show ideas, if you want to come on the show, I'm sure I could figure out a way eventually to be able to get you on the show remotely as a guest, or if you want to send me, if you want to send me an audio recording of your rebuttal to something that I have said, unencumbered by being forced to interact with said host. Or having to answer questions or anything like that. If you want to do something like that, I'm totally cool. I am an open-minded fellow. I do not have a fragile... My male ego is fragile, but it is not fragile in that regard. Please rate and review the show wherever you get your podcasts. Would like some ratings, would like some feedback. Always appreciated. Anything I can do to make this show better, more appealing, or if need be, more annoying to people that you want it to be more annoying to, I'm your guy. That is totally in my wheelhouse. This has been I Have So Many Questions, episode number nine. I have been your host, Brian Watson. Thank you for your time, your patronage, and your attention. May the force be with you.